Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Matthew, will you bring that stuff to me? <laughs> Both of them. That'd be great. If you guys don't know Matt, he's great. Get to know him. <laughs> Not just because he carries my stuff, but also that. Welcome. My name's Tim. I'm one of the youth pastors here. Uh, my wife, Kara, was the one playing the bass. She is our other youth pastor. Um, it's not like we split things and she does like the girls and I do the guys. Uh, we do everything together. She's my partner and everything. Um, and we appreciate your guys' support as we are trying to lead your students. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm trying to get situated here. Turn the old iPad on. I did have a couple more announcements. Um, number one, who knows what's right after service? No. Perfect. New here, start here, lunch. Do we have a slide for that? There you go. Okay, if this is your first time being here, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you don't know very much about our church, but you would like to get to know who we are, what our core values are, um, if you have questions that you would like to ask to some of the staff, we are going to provide a free lunch right after this service. You guys can just stick around in the front here. We'll come talk to you. We'll bring tables in, and we'll bring some food for you guys to eat. And then we'll go over what some of our core values are. We call it our DNA statements with you. And we will allow you guys to ask any questions that you have. And you can really just lay into us. We've heard every question there is. I promise you on that. Uh, you can get as deep as you want in those times. It's a time to be safe and a time to come and ask um, maybe you're exploring your own faith a little bit, or maybe you've been church shopping for a while and really want to know what we stand for. So I encourage you all to come to that. If you have not been to one before, it's a great thing to come to. Uh, and then again, like I said, if this is your first time, and I do see some new faces, please come to this. We want to bless you with at least a free lunch and maybe a little bit of knowledge too. And then my second announcement is summer camp. Boom, that's it. Did anyone have one of these phones? Yeah, a couple. I had one uh, that I would literally throw at my brothers um, for like years, and it never broke. These things are amazing. Uh, but they don't get on the internet, so we don't use them anymore because the internet's so important. But that's all off topic. We are doing a summer camp this summer, August 4th through 7th, for our youth students. This is anyone who is currently in sixth grade going through 12th grade. So we're not going to take any incoming 6th graders this time. Uh, instead, at the end of summer, we're going to do a 6th grade launch party for those incoming 6th graders. So this will be people going into 7th grade all the way through 12th grade. It's $150. We're going to go, it's like a Wednesday night through a Saturday. It's going to be an awesome time to come to learn about God, to learn about how he is calling us, and then also to learn about how to tell our stories or our testimonies um, in that camp. So if you guys know anyone that's in that age group, please think about sending them our way. Um, if you don't know anyone that age group, but you have a job, please consider donating some money because we have students uh, that can't afford to go and we're going to do some fundraising. But if you guys could just pitch in a little bit of money, that would be awesome. If everyone here put in like 10 bucks, that would probably honestly afford for all of our students to go. So $150. This is my, like, non-biased call. Please donate. Please. Please, please. If you even have just, like, pop cans, come drop them off. Okay, that's all my announcements. Welcome. I'm feeling slightly unprepared. Uh, 
I've known that I was going to speak for a while now, but Monday came and I was like, okay, time to buckle down, time to start studying uh, what I'm going to be preaching about. And then I realized I had to preach on Wednesday too for our youth group. So Tuesday was spent uh, working up for my Wednesday sermon. Wednesday was spent giving my Wednesday sermon. Thursday was spent practicing in the band because we had a Friday event. Friday was spent at that Friday event. Saturday morning was spent at Ladina's graduation party. If you didn't know she graduated college, somebody give a whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. She got a BS. <laughs> a little joke, but she did. Um, and then so Saturday night, I finally buckled down. I had been preparing. I have another job. I sell windows and insulation. That's my full-time job. This is an unpaid gig. So during the week, I was able to listen to some podcasts and really study what I'm going to be preaching about. But last night, I really had to lock it in. Um, so bear with me today. If this is your first time, do not judge our church on me. <laughs> Please come back next week. <laughs> um, Pastor Anthony does an amazing job, and hopefully I will tonight too today too. Also, I have a back injury, and so I'm walking around a lot because I need to. If I stand still for too long, my leg goes numb, and then it's an excruciating pain. So I might sit down, but I don't like sitting down, so you'll see a lot of these where I'm just like, okay. <laughs> but I'll start this way. Okay, anyone here had a busy week? Just me and Kara, my wife? Good. I'm so excited the direction this church is moving, guys. Um, Friday night, we had our viewpoint. This was the third one we had. This is our young adults ministry that we're starting to launch. Um, and we had about 30 young adults here. And not all of them come to this church. They just heard about it. They were invited by friends. Um, and it was an amazing time of impactful worship. And then Paula gave a really great message as well. Um, I'm excited that we're doing that. We're doing it once a month, but we also are starting to think forward. And how we're going to move this ministry forward is we're going to start doing young adult small groups. We're going to start going to campuses. We're going to start reaching our community. Because 30 sounds like a lot of young adults, but how many young adults live in Salem? Anyone? Thousands. That's correct. We have five colleges here within a 10-mile radius. Five. On average, that's like 5,000 students per college at least, okay? So this is a core group of people that live in our community that are being unreached, that are not being reached. And so this viewpoint is something that we're launching to hopefully reach people that are not being reached. Now, a lot of people grow up in, in church, like our youth group, but then as soon as they hit that young adult range, there's nothing for them except for this, boring Sunday mornings. And we try not to be boring, but other churches don't even try. <laughs> so you would understand, if you are 18 years old, you finally left your house, you moved to another state, you're there with your friends, and all of a sudden, Saturday night, you can go drinking, you'll do that, because that's where your friends are at. And Sunday morning comes along, and you don't want to go to church, because that's not as fun as last night was. And then you start to spiral. And that's my personal story, honestly. Started to spiral out of control, no longer made church a priority. Um, but the times in my life that had the biggest impact when, when there was something cool for my age group and people invited me to it, and I said, okay, yeah, I love Jesus, I'll go to that. 
So that's what Viewpoint's trying to be. We're trying to reach a community that's unreached. That was super optophic, guys. <laughs> but I'm pumped about it. <laughs> Hopefully you guys can too. Kara, I'm going to need some water. I could tell already. Whew. Who's this? Dwayne. Nah, you don't trust that guy. <laughs> okay, so I was asked to preach today on a small portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Has anyone heard it? You. <laughs> Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever preached, and it was preached by the most famous guy ever to live. And here I am, and I'm trying to expound on that for you. It's laughable, okay? People know this sermon if they go to church, if they don't go to church. You've at least heard parts of it. Okay, from this sermon come little things like Number one, treat others the way you want to be treated. The golden rule. Who's heard of that one? Number two, love your enemies as yourself. Is that how it goes? <laughs> I think I butchered that. Love your enemies. Number three, um, if you are lusting after somebody, cut your eye out. Who's heard that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so these are parts of the Sermon on the Mount that have made it into uh, modern-day thinking and modern-day moral teaching. Okay, people that don't believe in that Jesus was the Son of God will proclaim that Jesus was one of the best moral teachers that ever lived. Sermon on the Mount is a selection of teachings known all over the world to Christians and non-Christians alike. It's where we get sayings like, blessed are the poor. It's where we get sayings like, we are the salt and the light of the earth. It's, it's where we get sayings like, love your enemy. It's where we get the Lord's prayer. It's where we get the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. So yes, this is a collection of beautiful moral teachings by a very moral man. But if that's the only thing you look at, then you're wrong. Jesus was not just a moral teacher. If you believe that Jesus was merely a moral teacher, then you also have to believe that Jesus was a liar or that he was crazy because he proclaimed that he was the son of God. He proclaimed that he was bringing the kingdom of God here to earth. So if you say, yeah, I believe that Jesus was a moral teacher, then in the back of your head somewhere you have to say, but he was a liar. But he was crazy, which isn't good enough to keep a religion going for 2,000 years. Jesus was so much more than a moral teacher. Will you guys pray with me real quick, just so I can calm down? Lord, I ask that you would speak today, that you would open up the ears and soften the heart of our congregation, that they would get a better glimpse of your kingdom today. And be with me as I'm speaking. In your name I pray. Amen. So this whole Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus trying to portray to the world what this kingdom that he's talking about is going to be like. 
It's him taking things and saying, I am going to set up a kingdom, and this is exactly what it's going to be like. We're not talking about this is what my buildings will look like. We're not talking about this is what the streets will look like. But we're talking instead about the people of the kingdom and how they're going to interact with each other and how they're going to interact with God. Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, Matthew tells us from that time, and this was right after Jesus had been baptized by John, and then he went into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil for four days. But then it says, from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew summarized Jesus' whole teaching spectrum into one sentence, repent, or to turn from what you are doing, to stop what you are doing, to pay attention, because the kingdom of God is here. And in fact, the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven about 45 times. If you have a paper Bible, usually the book of Matthew is about 30 pages long, so that's 1.5 times per page Jesus says something about the kingdom of heaven. That's a lot. So as you're reading through this book, you have to come to the conclusion, you have to ask yourself, what is this kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of heaven that he keeps talking about? Because he's bringing it up so much. And I feel like a lot of times as Christians, we read through Matthew and we're like, this is a great story about Jesus. Oh, I love this moral teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But we skip over this kingdom of heaven part because it doesn't really fit into our Western society, right? We don't have a king here. We have a president. We have a Congress. We have a judicial system. We have a governor, more local. We have a mayor. But we don't have a king. Who here growing up used to play king? Like, you play with your brothers and sisters, right? I have four bro- three brothers and a sister, so I'm number four of five children. And we would always come up with all kinds of stories and play all kinds of games. And it was fun to become knights because you could pick up a stick and just start whacking at each other, right? Uh, it was fun to become, like, bandits so you could, like, sneak into something and steal it and then try to sneak out without being caught. Uh, Cops and Robbers was similar to that. But then every once in a while, we would play kingdom. And one of us would get to be the king. And um, can I borrow you, Adam? Come on up. Adam will be my little brother in this, and I get to be the king. Okay, as the king, I have sovereign rule over the entire nation. And the first thing I always did was, you're my footstool now. <laughs> and this was, this was how I was the king. Right? Thanks, dude. <laughs> so when I hear king and kingdom, I literally always think of making somebody be my footstool. Because I have absolute sovereign power. I can do whatever I want. Nobody can say anything to me because I'm the king. And I can have them beheaded if they do right? Which when you're a kid, it just means that they wear their shirt like this, right? And you can't see their head anymore. Like, you got beheaded. And then they're just kind of walking around, running into stuff. It was fun times in the Warnock household. But to figure out what it means to, to be the kingdom of heaven, you need to become more familiar with the Bible. If you are new to Christianity, or you have never taken the time to dive in to the Bible, 
as part of your relationship with God, then I highly recommend that you guys do so. We're going to watch a video here in a few minutes, not yet, but have your finger on the trigger there. Um, that's going to explain why it's important to read parts of the Bible. Because the whole Bible is a story that leads up to a new creation. And the people that Jesus was originally talking to in this Sermon on the Mount would have known the Old Testament. They would have known it by heart. Most of them could not have read, read it because they couldn't read at the time. But instead, they would have had an oral tradition where they would have heard it, and they would have heard it, and they would have heard it daily, and they would have heard it weekly, and they would have heard it monthly. Okay, so they knew what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the kingdom of heaven. On Wednesday night, um, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven these next couple weeks. So first thing I did is I said, hey, raise your hand if you know when the first time in the Bible the idea of these kings and kingdoms or ruling pops up in the Bible. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys the same question. Raise your hand if you know the very first time they talk about ruling in the Bible. Extra points if you know the page number. Nobody? Good guess. Piper cheated. She was here on Wednesday. <laughs> page one. By the way, if anyone asked you, like, what page was it on, you can kind of guess it's page one because no one else would guess any other page. Depending on the Bible you have, it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which, depending on the type size, could be page two. But my Bible, page one. So we'll pull that up here. <clears throat> said, then God said, let us make in our image after our likeness. Make, sorry, I skipped the word man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. This word dominion, it's also translated as sovereignty. It's a complete supreme rule over something. Let them be kings over the birds, over the fish, over the livestock, over every creeping thing. You see, God's original plan from day one was to create a partnership with us, a partnership with part of his creation. And together with his creation, he was going to set up this kingdom which the whole world would thrive, where we could learn to love one another and to love Jesus, or love God, all in the same breath. That's God's original plan. A kingdom that's a partnership between humans and God. The problem, if you read the Bible, is that like immediately humans are like, we're going to do it ourselves. Any of you guys have that attitude? <laughs> like, hey, I could help you with that. No, we got it. We got it. I think I can do it. But it doesn't go well. Humans decided to rebel against God. And because of this rebellion, God has to step back from the situation and he sets in a plan of mo- sets a plan into motion to redeem this creation. To set up his kingdom that he has in mind. One where we will be able to love God and where we will be able to love each other like he originally planned. And like we'll do it we'll do it well too. 
That's part of the thing that I think we always miss. So God does this. He sets this plan into motion through covenant relationships. Now, covenant isn't normally something we talk about daily, right? Like, uh, the only time in, like, America that we use it is when we're talking about marriage. It's a covenant relationship. And as you're getting married at, like, a young age, you're like, okay, cool, cool, yeah, covenant. Totally understand what you're talking about. And you're like, I don't actually know what they're talking about. This word covenant doesn't make any sense to me. So we're going to watch a quick video here, uh, and it talks about covenants, and hopefully it will help explain this whole God's plan thing to you guys a little bit better. So let's roll that video. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. 
The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to take its core themes and trace them all the way from the beginning through to the end. We also take individual books of the Bible and explore their They do a great job explaining things. Um, So hopefully that was meaningful to you. I watched it a bunch of times and it was to me. Um, Learning about covenants and learning also about how God wanted to use David's kingdom to set up this new kingdom um, on earth, and that through that kingdom, um, the Israelites would be able to bless all of earth and show them a proper way to treat each other. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes proclaiming that the kingdom that God just promised is here. Some of the versions say that the kingdom is at hand. It's literally within your grasp. And so this great crowd gathers around at Jesus' feet, and he sits down on this mountain, and he starts to tell everyone what this kingdom is going to be like. Because the only, the only small view that they have of it is the laws that Moses gave them, and then the 600 other laws that came after that. Okay, so all they know about this kingdom is that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, right? All the thou shouts, shout, shout, shout. That's a word. Okay, don't steal, don't murder. That's all they know. So what is this kingdom supposed to look like? And Jesus takes this time to start telling them about it. And this whole entire Sermon on the Mount is him saying, this is what the kingdom is like. And this is what you are now called to be like. So what's the kingdom like? 
In the kingdom, you will be treated well by all people. But more importantly, you yourself will treat all people well. Does that sound familiar? That's close to what the golden rule is, right? Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So whatever you want done to yourself, do to others. I'm going to take this time to invite Piper up. Piper, come on up. If you guys don't know Piper, she's an amazing young woman that's in our youth group. Uh, Today is her birthday. Yes? Yeah, let's give a round of applause. We're not going to sing to you. Um, But to do unto you like I want done to me, here's a gift card. Remember that. Thanks, Piper. Have a seat. (laughs) Do unto others what you want done to you. Uh, That was only a $5 gift card, but personally, I want more than that. (laughs) I just couldn't afford it, guys. Come on. (laughs) So some of you guys have heard this, do unto others what you want done to yourself. This is a moral teaching that people all over the world know whether they follow Jesus or not. So what's the big deal? Sounds easy. I remember learning this as a small kid. Um, Tim. How would you like it if your brother pushed you off the couch? <laughs> I wouldn't, but I pushed him anyway. Don't do it to him. Tim, how would you like it if I ate all of your Halloween candy? Then don't do it to him. I just wanted it so much. <laughs> uh, it seems easy, right? But if you start to think about this more and you start to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you begin to realize that this small teaching goes way deeper than just trying to treat other people the way you want to be treated. God calls his people and his kingdom to a higher standard. So do unto others what you want to have done to you. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 puts it this way. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is even angry with their brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults their brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. When was the last time you called somebody a fool? (laughs) Uh, yesterday, today even. One of my favorite quotes from Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is falling into the pit of abyss, and he goes, fly, you fools. I go, oh, you're going to the hellfire. And he literally falls into what looks like hellfire. It was like perfect. Does anyone have a Bible translation that says another word besides fool? Because some of them do. My favorite other translation is the word raka. Is fool a good translation? Yes and no. Um, But we lose a lot in the translation. So raka is Aramaic um, for empty-headed one or empty one, which sounds like fool. Uh, But part of what makes this word raka so potent Uh, is the sound of it. 
Okay, they would have said it like this. Exactly. Spit. To hock a loogie and spit it in somebody's face. It's not you're just empty-headed. It's you're nothing. You are not worth my time. I'm going to literally spit in your face. So don't call somebody raka. And it's not just don't spit in somebody's face. It's the meaning behind that. It's make sure you're treating people like they are actual people. Make sure you are treating people like they are not lower than you. Because these, all these people are image bearers of God. When God created humans, he created them in the image of God. And if you are treating somebody like they are less than that, then you are in the wrong. So don't say to your brother, fool. Don't remain angry at your brother because remaining angry at them is the same thing as wanting to murder them. It's saying that you are not worth reconciliation. You are not worth life. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I got lost. Hold on. I'm almost there. Treat others the way you want to be treated. In the kingdom of heaven, God makes it possible for you to control your anger. And in the kingdom of heaven, God makes it possible for you to treat others the way you want to be treated. Let's pull up Matthew 5, 27 and 30 through 30. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. If you guys don't know, adultery is when you sleep with someone else's spouse. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Does this seem harsh? In today's society, this seems harsh. I have to tell you, we are not currently living in the kingdom of heaven. Because you can't leave this building without having a lustful thought, it feels like. So are we supposed to tear our eyes out? Or are we supposed to cut our hands off? This is supposed to hit hard. In the kingdom of God, we will treat others the way we want to be treated. That means we are going to lift people up. That means we are going to start holding each other accountable. That means we are going to protect our young women, and we're going to protect our young men from things that are sexually perverse. It means no longer treating people as if they are nothing, as if they are less than human. This isn't the same word raka that Jesus uses in the previous passage, but it feels similar, right? It's the same action of saying, you're nothing, let me spit on you. We're done. I'm just using you to feel good, and then when it's over, you're going to leave my life forever. 
you're dead to me. In the kingdom of heaven, God makes a way for us to not live by hormones alone. But he makes it possible to see people the way that he sees them. As holy, as righteous sons and daughters. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? I'm going to call the band back out. Sorry, Dwayne. (laughs) This is shorter than they're used to. That's okay. Like I said, I did it last night. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain to the just and to the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In the kingdom of heaven, we must be perfect. If you're thinking to yourself, I can't do that, you're right. (laughs) Good, Good intuition on that one. We must treat everyone like God treats them. If you're thinking to yourself, I can't do that, you're right. God treats them as if their lives are worth the death of his only son. And I know most of you don't go around thinking, I have an enemy and this is his name. This is her name. But I'm friends with a lot of you guys on Facebook. And uh, things you say about people in the government... Things you say about people in your schools, things you say about musicians, things you say about athletes. And I'm guilty of all this stuff too. Um, But we as Christians have set people up as enemies. And we dehumanize them daily in our minds, to our friends, on Facebook. It's just a funny meme, right? But this says that we're supposed to be perfect. And this says that we're supposed to start treating people like God treats them. And this says that we are supposed to treat others the way we want to be treated. It's his goal, and it always has been, to partner with us into making this place, this earth, wonderful. But how can we expect to partner with him if we're always tearing his creation down? If we're setting other people up for failure, if we're seeing people and saying, that's not a real person, that's just something that makes me feel good, or that's something that makes me feel bad and they deserve to die. Raka. Imagine the the audacity to say, God, I know you made this person but I really don't like them. They're nothing. 
I know you made this woman, but I'm only going to think of her as an object. Other than that, she's nothing. Will you guys bow your heads with me? God, this is not a fun passage to talk about. And I appreciate your patience with me and with us as a church. I pray that as we go into this last worship song, uh, that you would tug on all of our hearts. That you will show us where we as individuals need to repent. Where we need to stop what we're doing. Where we need to turn from it where we need to pay attention to you and to how you are moving. And then as we leave this place and we go out into this world that you created, God, I pray that we would begin to see and we would begin to grasp what you want your kingdom of heaven to look like and how you want the rest of the world to be treated by us because you want us to treat them as humans. That is the image bearer of you. That's your creation. That's someone you want to partner with. So I pray this would strike home with a lot of us. And I pray that as we're going through the rest of our week that, that we would start to see little ways to do it, God. Because you say your kingdom of, hand, of heaven is, is within grasp. And we personally know that it is too hard for us to get out of this situation by ourselves. It's too hard to stop doing the things we're doing by ourselves, God. But you gave us this community to work with. And you gave us your son to soften our hearts. So I pray that you would do so. And I pray that you would give us the courage to talk to one another about areas we're struggling with. I pray that you would soften our hearts when it comes to politicians, to athletes, uh, to musicians, to people we don't even know. Because we're supposed to be your image bearers to the world. And how are they going to know what God looks like when we are not treating people the way you we want to be treated.